0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A listener wrote in after I recently put up a recording from a BBC series I did in 2016 called All My Presidents. He asked me to run the whole series before Election Day. So here's another one, which I've updated, as you will hear if you stick around to the end. Please do. As you become an adult in America, your relationship to the president changes. There's the obvious reason. You have an active role in selecting him, and finally, a her. But also, as you enter the world of work, the expectations you have of the president take on a pragmatic economic color. His policies could affect your earnings and how much tax you pay. The voting age when I was growing up reflected this, 21. Most people have entered the workforce by then. Today, the voting age is 18, and the statistics bear out the idea that being an economic participant in society makes you take presidential voting seriously. Teens don't vote. The first man I voted for who actually won was James Earl Carter in 1976, and those were the years I drove a taxi cab and worked in the theater. My beginnings as a journalist are intimately connected to the presidency of his successor, Ronald Reagan, in 1980. The four years between the two elections were a time when the magnetic polarity of American society reversed, from progressive to reactionary, although those who lived through the event may not have noticed. Jimmy Carter, a nuclear physicist by training, probably didn't notice either. He was an insurgent in a Democratic Party still looking for a direction home to the New Deal and the fondly imagined restoration of the Kennedys. The last living Kennedy brother, Ted, wasn't available in 1976, as he was still in Perda. The incident at Chappaquiddick Island, in which he drove off a bridge and Mary Joe Kopeckney, a passenger in his car, drowned while he swam free, weighed heavily. Carter was clean. Carter was pious. Carter was a good house guest. The first reports that seeped out as his campaign took off nationally told of how he traveled on his initial campaign tours without an entourage and stayed overnight in ordinary folks' houses and always made his bed in the morning before leaving. After the lies surrounding Vietnam, Watergate, and Nixon's pardon by his successor, Gerald Ford, the only one of my presidents who never faced the electorate, the appeal of Carter was this simplicity and his authenticity. He was also a man of the South, the governor of Georgia, and he offered the prospect of bringing white voters in the southern states back to the Democratic Party. They had drifted away over the previous decade following the enactment of civil rights legislation by the Democrat Lyndon Johnson. Carter did bring part of the South back and won the presidency, but the cross-currents he encountered ruined his prospects. He was the unlucky general Napoleon would never have promoted. The economy he took over was still suffering from the Arab oil embargo of 1973, which had injected inflation into the economy. Periodic oil shortages meant queues at gas stations. The economy was stagnant. During his time in office, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and the Shah of Iran was overthrown by revolution. Those are crises. A president has tools to deal with some of them but he has no tools to deal with profound demographic and psychological changes among new voters whose formative experience wasn't the shared sacrifice of World War II and whose childhood economic memories were not of the Great Depression but of the era of abundance following victory in World War II. A segment of the electorate who had come of age in the era of Watergate and who had no inclination to believe a word any politician said, we were hip. He was square. It was easy for us to forget that one of Carter's first acts as president was to give an amnesty to those who had left the country to avoid the draft during the Vietnam era when balanced against his endorsement of forms of energy, like nuclear power and coal, that hip younger voters considered dirty. Carter was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was a well-known anti-Soviet cold warrior. This also made him suspect. Real achievements for peace, like bringing Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin together to negotiate the Camp David Accords, did not earn Carter respect because the fundamental problem of the occupation of the West Bank was left unresolved. Throughout his presidency, the unemployment rate came down but the permanent government in Washington, those attached to think tanks and lobbying groups and the press corps, which had grown enormously in the previous decade, gave the man no respect. And when on November 4, 1979, Iranian students invaded the American embassy in Tehran and took 53 diplomats hostage, another change in American society revealed itself. Television news had long been sober and serious. Its editorial leaders lived by the code of Edward R. Murrow. This instrument can teach, it can illuminate, it can even inspire. ABC News, long the least watched of the three main networks, had been taken over by ABC's head of sports, Rune Arledge. He had revolutionized coverage with his up-close-and-personal approach to sporting events. He brought the same tabloid, heart-on-sleeve approach to the news. He promoted entertainment reporter Barbara Walters to anchor duties. She got the big interviews with foreign leaders, asking them the deep questions. Of Indian Prime Minister Moraji Desai, she asked, Is it true you drink your own urine? Now, with the hostage crisis in Tehran, Arledge cleared a block of late-night broadcasting for a daily update. Nightline, he called it, and each program started, America Held Hostage, Day 4 or Day 10, and on it stretched. By America Held Hostage, Day 100, Carter's public image was unrecoverable. He had allowed America to be humiliated by a nation of religious fanatics. Then he launched the ill fated mission to rescue them. Eight American soldiers died in the attempt. Throughout all this time, politics, the Carter presidency, didn't break through to me. Actors are a self-obsessed crew, and I was no different than my colleagues. But in early 1980, I began to pay attention. Presidential election year. The primaries were underway. America was still being held hostage. It was day 140 or so. I was rehearsing the American premiere of David Edgar's play Mary Barnes at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. Teddy Kennedy had decided to end his purdah and challenge Carter for the nomination. Ronald Reagan was looking more and more like the Republican nominee. The charisma-free Carter had no chance of beating the charismatic Reagan but Kennedy. Well, the restoration might be at hand if only the president would step aside, as Lyndon Johnson had in 1968. But no, he wouldn't. Sometime in early April 1980, Carter wrapped up the Democratic nomination and Reagan won enough delegates to claim the Republican crown. I was sitting in the Long Wharf Green Room and said aloud to no one in particular, well, that's it. Reagan will be president. Some of my more political friends, who still thought it was 1968, were sanguine about this. The election of the very conservative Reagan would ruin the economy and hasten the revolution. I hope they're not still waiting. America was held hostage for 444 days. Interestingly, on the day after Reagan was sworn in, the hostages were released. The times in America had changed. The road back to the New Deal would be permanently blocked. The age of reaction had begun. We're still living in it. My times had changed as well. I gave up acting after Mary Barnes. An objective decision. The play starred Dame Eileen Atkins. Sitting next to me in the men's dressing room was Kevin Bacon. I was a technically good actor, but I knew star quality when I saw it in the rehearsal room or was stripped to my underwear putting on makeup next to it. I didn't have it, and I needed to do something else with my life. I sweet-talked my way into a job as the oldest copy aide at the Washington Post. The woman in charge of hiring had a beloved cousin who was a struggling actor in New York and took pity on me. Two weeks before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, I began working in the style section, answering phones, taking down copy, being a general dog spotty. The paper itself was not immune to bigging up the change in Washington. One preview story was about the jostling for parking space for Reagan supporters' private jets at National Airport. Inauguration night, I was in the office as the formally-dressed reporters flooded the city to record the end of the Puritan Carter years. The headline next day read, The Power and the Glory and the Parties. Report after report of Restoration Excess. This was not the Washington Post of Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. The permanent government in D.C. loved Ronald Reagan as much as it loathed Jimmy Carter. The style section is where the up-close and personal profiles of the Reagan team appeared. Gossip about the inner circle was thrown loudly around the office. Listening to good reporters shed their professional skepticism the closer they got to powerful men was something I'd rather not have observed. As was pointed out to me after a couple of years, I was not a good fit with the Washington Post. I rather agreed. Of all the firings I have endured, that hurt least. I returned to New York. But that didn't end my professional connection to the Reagan presidency. A few years later, in 1985, the Nation magazine, decidedly unreactionary, sent me to Washington to compile reports on prospective Reagan appointees to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court drama is the narrative spine that runs through the story of all the presidents of my lifetime. In 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower appointed a former California governor, Earl Warren, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Warren was a Republican and, by the standards of his time, a conservative. But the court he presided over rendered some of the most liberal decisions in American history on school desegregation, rights of people accused of crimes, and setting out the difference between free speech and imposed religious speech. Warren became a hate figure for the right wing. When he retired 16 years later, Richard Nixon was president. He appointed an even more conservative figure to be chief justice, Warren Berger. The Burger Court presided over even more liberal decisions, ending the death penalty, endorsing the legality of forced integration, and, in the case of Roe v. Wade, legalizing abortion. This last decision would reshape the Republican Party and America's domestic politics from the moment it was handed down to the present. Overturning Roe v. Wade became a cause, and then it became an obsession for a minority within the grassroots of the party particularly in the South. It gave rise to the religious right wing in America, whose noontime came under Ronald Reagan. The previous three decades of Supreme Court decisions, from enforcing integration in state schools, ending mandatory school prayer, to legalizing abortion, had led them to organize, and Reagan was happy to take their energy on board. The quid pro quo for their organizing energy was a promise to appoint judges to the Supreme Court who would work actively to overturn Roe v. Wade. I spent most of the summer of 1985 in Washington, compiling reports on two men who fit that bill, Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, a Mormon and outspoken critic of abortion, and Judge Antonin Scalia, who sat on the Federal District Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., I spent hours in the courthouse watching the Scalia performance on the bench. He was an insult comedian. I interviewed both men's colleagues and staffers and partisans of all stripes and learned that this branch of government, the judicial branch, the one that was designed to be above partisan politics, had now become the most contested political battleground in the nation. It still is. My connection to these two presidents continued. When my interview and note-taking in Washington was done, I returned to my room on 7th Street between Avenues C and D on the arson-ravaged Lower East Side of Manhattan to write my reports. I was under a time constraint. In a few weeks, I was getting married and then moving to London it was hard to concentrate. The summer heat lingered into September, the windows were open, and the roar of the city occupied the space in my brain where I usually find words. Late in the month, the noise intensified. High-pitched whine of electric saws, erratic syncopation of humans wielding hammers. Come on, what is that? Go outside to check. One block south, A burned-out tenement was being renovated, a project of Habitat for Humanity. Carpenter-in-chief at this project was Jimmy Carter. Tried to catch a glimpse, but couldn't see him. The following summer, Reagan appointed Scalia to the Supreme Court. The Nation published my report, and it was quoted in more than 100 newspapers. That was the 1986 version of Going Viral. But by then, I had moved to London. And the story still isn't over. Antonine Scalia died in February 2016. President Obama's nominee for his seat, Merrick Garland, was not even given the courtesy of a hearing by the Republican-controlled Senate. Too close to an election, they said. Last month, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Even closer to the election, but the Republican-controlled Senate is preparing to rush the nomination of her successor, Amy Coney Barrett, through hearings and vote her onto the court. Roe v. Wade has not been overturned yet. There's still work to be done. And Jimmy Carter, the 96-year-old former president, has beaten brain cancer and still lends his carpentry skills in a symbolic way, to Habitats for Humanity projects, although not on the Lower East Side, which is now thoroughly gentrified, but in neighborhoods in the South, places not overwhelmed by hedge fund types wanting to be hip. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. If there's a subject you'd like to hear me write about or an interview you'd like me to get, visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and contact me. And while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.